Welcome to the 100 Club Podcast, a show designed to elevate the game of senior living sales and marketing leaders. I'm your co-host, Michael Moy, and with me is Corey Mitchell. We're talking to leaders from all different positions and titles, giving you and your team a competitive edge to reach 100% occupancy. We're listening to season one. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of 100 Club Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Mitchell, and today we have a very, very special guest. Heather White is joining us today. Welcome to the show, Heather. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a such a cool opportunity to be here. If you guys don't know who Heather White is, you absolutely will know why we wanted her on this podcast after this episode. She's someone that I look up to in the industry, someone who is a leader for change, um, and not only that, but just an overall great person. And I got to spend some good amount of time with her when we worked together at Thrive Senior Living. Um, so just an honor for me to be able to have you on as a guest. Um, Heather, start off by telling us a little bit about your background and um, how long you've been in senior living. Yeah, so I uh, got my undergrad degree in, uh, in Arkansas. I'm originally from Fort Worth, but went to college in Arkansas. And I studied industrial and organizational psychology. It's the psychology of people in the workplace, basically, in a nutshell. And then I came back to Texas and pursued my master's and uh, my MBA in healthcare administration. And all of that and uh, a, few, um, a few family um, opportunities that popped up really ignited my passion for older adults. And I just fell into senior living and have been here for over 15 years. Um, so the senior, no, I'm sorry, the senior, I was just going to say my adventure in senior living, it's, it's, um, it has led me to a few different opportunities all around the United States and uh, had an opportunity to meet different people with different levels of interest, different needs, and an opportunity to to grow businesses uh, in all over. Um, it's It's been a huge blessing and a huge opportunity for uh, growth, really, for everyone involved. So, so take me back to the beginning real quick. How did you get started in senior living? What was your first job in senior living? And then kind of tell me your, your path of growth. Oh, it's 100% my great-grandmother's fault. Uh, she um, she was in a skilled nursing facility in Texas, and I had just gotten out of college and was volunteering because I found that I loved the population. Uh, but I eventually learned that the environment was not best suited for me. So I just started, you know, doing some Google searches about how to work with older adults and not in um, a facility like what she was in and learned about this little thing called assisted living and memory care. So I remember applying for about 10 or 15 different communities. And I walked from each, from one community to another, giving my resume out, no sales pitch. I would just walk in and have my resume. Hey, I'm Heather. Uh, I don't know what I want to do, but I think I might want to work here. Here's my resume. I mean, braces, bangs, like I look like a 12 year old. And someone had uh, the um, the wisdom, I would like to say, to invite me onto the team or the guts, you know, whatever that was. But um, I came in as a caregiver and I uh, really 
started to learn to love it by um, just jumping into everything. I was a caregiver on every shift in assisted living and in memory care. I was doing activities, driving the bus, answering the phones, washing dishes. I even remember calling my dad for help one day whenever I was responsible for hooking up a washing machine and a dryer and I didn't know what I was doing. So I just, I just jumped in and learned every aspect of the business. And I found myself engaging other people along the way and just having fun with it. And I think that's where my, that's where my, my passion for senior living really, uh, really took off. And so how long ago was that? When did that start? Oh my goodness. That was in 2007. I think my very first day in walking into uh, a senior living community as a team member employee was St. Patrick's Day of 2007. Oh my gosh, I'm dating myself. Wow. 2007. <laughs> so yeah. So you, I, I found it fascinating. And I think a lot of the people who do kind of, they start at the caregiver level and they grow, they have such a tremendous respect for the industry and they see it from a, from a different angle. I truly believe that. And some of our greatest leaders in the industry have spent time as a caregiver and grown. Um, and that's something that you've done. You started as a caregiver, like you said, you did activities, you ended up being an ED and now you're running your own business. It's just an amazing story. They are the heart and soul of our industry. So I would love to hear a little bit more just from your caregiver side, what it was like back then. Um, the really and truly the heart of caregiving is just having a passion for people. And um, it doesn't always come natural to, to everyone. In fact, I found that whenever I first started as a caregiver, I was in assisted living and I had an executive director at the time who knew that I would really say yes to anything. Hey, Heather, can you help over here? Can you help us with this? sure, no problem. And I would just jump in. And he asked if I would help by covering a shift in the memory care neighborhood one time. And um, I can't believe I'm saying this for the whole world to hear, but I'm so transparent. This is how we celebrate failure and we grow from it. Uh, but my response was, no, absolutely not. The The folks who live over there are crazy. Um, it's wild to think that those words actually came out of my mouth. And now I'm, I am a professional dementia educator. <laughs> but that was my initial thought. And uh, his response was something along the lines of, they're not crazy. You're crazy for thinking that. And no one has ever died from picking up an eight hour shift working in that neighborhood. Do it and tell me how it was. Okay. So I jumped in and did. And I was so used to just engaging people and leading activities that in my head, I felt like I had to be like entertaining, dancing, singing, you know, cute. And I had no clue what to really uh, expect. And, and, um, it's failure number one is not being set up for uh, a vision for what success looks like, but I figured it out and failed my way through it. And my very first failure was thinking that I had to go into the neighborhood with um, an arsenal of just activities and things to keep people engaged. And out of sheer habit, I went to uh, the helium tank and got some balloons and filled some balloon or a balloon up with helium just out of habit because I would typically have bright colors and lead people to areas where we were doing activities. 
And uh, my thinking was that I would go into this memory care neighborhood and lead an activity of uh, balloon volleyball. And when I filled that balloon up with helium, it was purely out of habit. <laughs> so I came walking into this memory care neighborhood with this bright red balloon under my arm not thinking that it was filled up with helium instead of my own breath. And I got people together and come on, let's get together and do this uh, balloon volleyball activity. And I had, you know, five, six, seven uh, residents from that memory care neighborhood in a circle and said, I'm going to toss you the balloon, hit it back to me. And I tossed the balloon to them and it flew up to the ceiling. And I had six or seven people with various types of advancing dementia look at me like I'm the idiot which I was, and um, it was a very humbling experience. I am so thankful for, because then it just broke down every barrier and we started laughing and talking and engaging and as real human beings. Um, and that, I think that actually started my love for working um, specifically with people who are living with some type of dementia because it's um, it's so abnormal to some people, and it's not fair to the to the person who's actually living with it. With the dementia education, are we are we advancing in the things that we we find out about Alzheimer's dementia for like what stimulates them and how we're treating them? Is that just an old way of thinking? With like we're just gonna you know do activities in front of them and put them in a circle and put them in front of a TV and. Any is there any findings, you know, for activities or anything like that that you're seeing that is going to be different maybe in the upcoming years? That's really the this concept, this idea of peopletopia that I have in my in my brain is is just creating an environment where people can um, grow, whether it's personally or professionally, um, spiritually, physically, uh, but people can grow. Um, because of the opportunities you allow them to have. Gotcha. And that that really is going to look different for every person. Um, I definitely don't believe that there's, you know, a one size fits all for any, you know, one person who has a diagnosis of some type of dementia. Um, and it isn't structured either. Um, some of it just comes naturally. Um, like, for example, I... Just before this podcast, I had a call with uh, a group of individuals local um, in the Fort Worth area, and I was volunteering my time and leading a program where um, it's it's called FitWits, and we do you know cognitively stimulating activities with various themes. But that was the plan for the day, and it was structured, and it was based on. Um, you know, just cognitive, um, not really cognitive development, but celebrating what the older adults still had to offer. Um, and that's not what we got to. In fact, the topic when we first started, it went down this rabbit trail of majority of the people who were on the call were educators previously. And the love that they had for their students and sharing stories about how they did not only teach their students how to pass the test, which was what the school district wanted, uh, but they taught their students and instilled in them principles that would follow them for the rest of their lives and how meaningful that was years later to hear students come back to them and share how 
you know, they were impacted. My stinking program was nothing compared to the joy that, um, you know, the people in the program had talking about how they were able to have a positive impact on other lives. So that in my mind is peopletopia. And, you know, the majority of my time in senior living was spent as, you know, an executive director, administrator, everyone has their own term. But that's what we do, right? I mean, we're, we're not just building an industry, it's we're building people. And that's our residents who, um, you know, live under the roof that we're responsible for. It's the team members that work under the roof we're responsible for. It's the family members of everyone. It's our investor partners. It's the people who refer business to us and we refer business to. Um, we're in the we're in the business of people, and it's not a one size fits all uh, program, um, which only adds to the complexity of you know the senior living industry. How long were you an executive director for? Mm, about eight and a half nine years. Eight and a half nine years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so, tell me a little bit about your company. It's called Grace and Truth Education. Yes. Okay, tell me about it. What does it do? So Grace and Truth Education is has a couple of different arms. The primary focus is specialized dementia education. Um, and that could look like teaming up with nurses and offering CEUs. Um, it could look like helping um, senior living professionals, whether it's in um, the senior living industry, uh, home health, uh, recently connected with a physician's office that visits people in different environments, um, working with local not-for-profit organizations, but doing dementia education uh, with organizations and individuals who are in a crunch and they don't, they don't know what they don't know. Um, And my approach to uh, educating on different types of dementia, I really try to be um, customized in uh, the message and the messaging. And so I start with a lot of listening to identify what the need really is first. Um, and then I also incorporate, oftentimes, I have a, a therapy dog of German Shepherd. Her name is Rosa. Um, and that will usually Uh, that will usually add to the excitement of the training and really help with a lot of examples of how to get creative because the whole purpose of the dementia education is um, focusing on how we think about people and empowering the student to be creative and unique in what they do with that knowledge. Um, So, a large area of focus for grace and truth education is specialized dementia education in, in that way. Um, and then I also have another arm of grace and truth that is um, really focused on helping senior living professionals specifically uh, cultivate leadership and business growth. And sometimes that looks like regulatory compliance. Sometimes it looks like mentorship for either the administrator or someone on their leadership team or a a leader that doesn't have a title but leads a lot of people because of the area of influence they have and responsibilities in the community. So really two arms um, 
that are highly focused on personal and professional growth, because ultimately that's what at the end of the day grows the business. So I'm curious. So you're an ED for nine years, and then you had this fire inside to start your own business, be an entrepreneur. Why did you choose what you did with dementia training and compliance and leadership? What do you think it was within those nine years that really either sparked something inside of you or it was always there um, that kind of made you think that this is what you wanted to do? Oh, yeah, I think there was a level of awareness the whole time. Uh, You know, as an administrator, um, you have so many responsibilities in the lives of every person, every penny that comes in and goes out of your business. Um, And there are so many different areas of focus and projects and tasks and initiatives that you are responsible for. Um, and I, I found that I was successful in, in those uh, endeavors whenever I would you know, apply myself. But I also had a knack of incorporating other people and other voices into those projects. And that may not have always been the ideal culture um, or the expectation for the project, but I just naturally understood that um, different voices, um, different areas of insight, different strengths could only add value to whatever the task or the project was. So to answer your question, I think I all, I always had that, that fire in my belly. I just um, was a little bit slower uh, to come about how to apply that in a way that allows me to focus the majority of my time and attention on that instead of being spread um, to to various projects that I wasn't always as equally passionate about. So tell me what hurdles you specialize in overcoming. So if if there's communities out there, companies out there that, um, you know, would be an ideal client for you, what is it that they need to overcome or what is it that you would really go in and help doing um, that maybe that their team there just needs a little bit of ongoing support with? Yeah. So there are a couple of things come to mind, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to investing in people, which again, I think everyone in seeing in the senior living industry does, whether they realize it or not, it's what we're doing. And when it comes to investing in people, um, a lot of that is, and it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing task. And, um, you know, really what I do is I come in and I don't take that off of someone's plate because it, it isn't my relationship to build with an administrator's team. Um, but I help to cultivate that and paint a picture of what success looks like and make it attainable. Um, like, like for example, um, whenever a few years back, I studied, uh, I studied Krav Maga. Um, it's a, you know, self-defense um, class. And uh, there was a lot of training that was done on how to immediately respond to an attack, um, whether someone was, you know, grappling, it was a gun or a knife involved. I mean, we studied various scenarios. And the focus was, how do you respond in this situation or if that happens? And I remember thinking, 
how am I going to remember how to do this in a split second? I, you know, and I would, I would doubt whether or not I would be successful if that opportunity, you know, God forbid ever happens. I didn't know if I was going to actually respond the way I was supposed to, to remain safe. And, you know, maybe fighting wasn't my true passion at the time, you know, who knows, but I, I took that failure. I mean, I, I tried and I learned that that's not something that just came natural and I was passionate about. So I don't study it currently, but I took that as a learning opportunity and celebrated that and really set on, you know, why did that not work? And um, that really, that idea is part of what helped to create this training style that I have, whether it's training folks on different types of dementia and what it looks like to be successful in whatever your engagement is, um, whether it's training someone on how to um, how to work with their schedule and make their schedule work for them, um, whether it's training someone how to, you know, select the right team member, bring them on board and love them really well. Um, I, I really work with each individual person to figure out what makes their heart come alive and what are their strengths and not necessarily help them to overcome areas of their business that they're not great in. That's not the sole, that's not the sole focus. It is what we do, but it's not a hundred percent of it. Really, it's celebrating what they are good at and finding ways to utilize that in their current role or whatever their whatever the role is there they you know desire to move into. So, you know, a lot of the focus is aligning this head knowledge and heart knowledge and empowering people in whatever their role or their responsibility is to respond in their own unique way. Um, and it isn't, it's presenting this opportunity for growth in a way that isn't, it isn't taxing on the student at all. It's, it's empowering and it casts a vision for what success looks like and, and makes it attainable. Um, so tell me a little bit about what about the actual dementia training. So is it um, online courses that you that you have caregivers taking or the whole community taking? Um, is it hands on where you're going into the community? Kind of give me a little bit more insight about just exactly what it is the training is. Yeah, it's D, all of the above. Um, I have a couple of uh, courses that I offer um, online. Um, this. Grace and Truth education is really, it's really taking off. Um, and so the technology piece of it, uh, I need to, I need to beef up. Um, and so the program that I've created is fundamentally, uh, the teaching material is the same, but the, the videos and the virtual interactions that I have are all um, different based on the, the customer, the client and what their current need is or what they desire to achieve. Um, and so sometimes it is videos that I share with, uh, with a client, whether it's an organization or an individual. Um, and sometimes it is uh, in-person training, which um, 
usually the feedback that I get is, um, is that people feel more engaged and, um, I mean, shoot, in my in-person interaction, I'll, I'll ask for permission to, you know, to touch someone's leg or to hold their hand because there's so much interaction and you can, you can get, um, you can experience that meaningful connection that really resonates not only with the students, but they can see how it has a positive impact on someone who's living with dementia. And um, so the in-person training, it's my favorite and it tends to be the favorite of some of my students, but that isn't always possible. Um, and then other training looks like um, going to seminars or to you know, a hospital or a conference and offering either advocacy training um, which is a really condensed version or extended training to offer nursing CEUs. And um, my training is for that is through the National Institute for Dementia Education. And so I am a proctor for them and I can uh, train um, and certify my students to be uh, dementia experts. So I'm, I'm super curious. With the dementia training, are you finding anything out there that's like groundbreaking new research that we're finding about Alzheimer's and dementia or anything about cures for Alzheimer's? I know that's a hot topic, you know, finding a cure for Alzheimer's. And is there anything out there that that you have found? I I have not. Um, I'm actually doing um, a couple of projects uh, starting next week with um some researchers for uh, blue zones and um, and also um, the the um, there are a couple of colleges uh, UT and um, Mayo Clinic have a few different studies uh, for um, not only medications but environmental changes and um, proactive changes to uh, diet, um, physical activity, um, human interaction that can um, are believed to uh, reduce the risk of some type of dementia. Um, and I've reached out to an organization um, in hopes of connecting with them in a meaningful way for additional studies, um, but they work specifically with um, former uh, players for the NFL. And um, they're looking to build some senior living communities that are specifically for former athletes. And um, in those communities, they would be made up of um, every, every team member, every employee being a, uh, a dementia expert. So a few opportunities and, you know, my crystal ball is broken. So I don't know if there's ever gonna be a cure or when that would happen. Um, but there are a lot of very, very passionate people um, who are on a very meaningful mission. And anything I can do to support that, I'm I'm in it 100%. I'm with you on that. I, de- I do think that there will be a cure. Um, will it be in our lifetime or not? I hope so. I, I hope so. I hope so, too. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to shift gears, but I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the dementia education because I think that's probably you know, the most important thing that we could talk about, but I do want to shift gears into your leadership training. So you do leadership training and compliance. So tell me about your leadership training. 
um, what that looks like when you're when you're doing the training inside communities or with companies. Um, and because we are a sales podcast, kind of how we're going to kind of tie all this into to sales and how this all works. But give me a little, you know, oversight of how you do your leadership training. Yeah, so the leadership training is um, it really starts with figuring out not only who the key leader is of you know, the community um, or the organization, but also um, who are who are other leaders within the community? Um, what is that main leader's responsibility, and um, what are any you know, measurable goals that they might have? What do they feel are um, measurable misses? And learning a little bit more about why I was invited in in the first place. Um, it starts with a lot of a lot of listening. And I believe, just like in the dementia education, I believe that you have to build this culture of relationship and trust um, in order to have any sort of long-lasting you know, influence or change. And so gaining insight and input from the person who's receiving the training is, is always where it starts. Um, and then we move on to uh, establishing goals, um, whether it is, you know, their own personal goals, it's professional goals. And we work through examples of what it looks like to lead themselves well, because there's no way in the world they're going to be able to lead, you know, their team or other people or even change a culture of an organization uh, if they themselves are struggling. And so we spend some time on that. Are you working with, it's a very, e, with, with EDs um, and just, just EDs? Are you working with sales, business office, all of the above? Who, who are you actually working with with this leadership training? So I'm working with executive directors, but in many cases, there are uh, people in the organization that don't have that title that are also leaders and receiving leadership training. So in some cases that would look like a sales director and we're really intentional about the amount of time and what time of day uh, you know, we spend together. Um, same with nurses, oftentimes there's a clinician that holds a lot of responsibility and input into the business and the people. Um, Sometimes it is an executive director in training, someone who doesn't have one of those titles, but they aspire to move into a role like that, or their their employer sees um, potential and wants to invest in growing them in hopes of them moving into another role. Um, so it isn't necessarily the the title um, that I stick with. It's the desire to learn and grow. And if we have an opportunity to connect, then we do. So how do you teach someone to be a better leader? I see that as a great example of somebody who is following this career path growth and you become an ED and you sit in that seat and you're going, oh my gosh, all these people, I'm mm -hmm. responsible for all these people. How do I get all these people on the same page? And I, and I think in senior living, it's even harder than just a normal organization. You know, it's 24 seven, it's nonstop. You have X amount of employees that, you know, some are there for eight hours, you know, you have caregivers coming and going three shifts. It's just never ending. So how do you teach someone to be a better leader? 
Yeah, it's it can be overwhelming if you let it. And the key is to intentionally take it one bite at a time. And I I am a firm believer that if you if you pour into people, um, if you build people, if you're intentional about um, building people, that will build your business. And there's a lot of intentionality around that. Um, and sometimes it's an investment. Sometimes you don't get radically changed, measurable results overnight. Um, it is an investment and it's ongoing. And so to answer your question about how, how I build leaders and build future leaders, um, it starts with how they view themselves, um, how what they think about their responsibility, um, what keeps them up at night and what makes their heart come alive. And, and then we look at what are you doing about it? What is in your control? And we, we work through a few exercises about how to control what you can and how you think about the things that are out of your control. And then, um, and that may actually entail pushing the envelope a little bit. Um, like for example, um, one of the things that uh, I found success with in the past, uh, not only in this, in this um, training and education with grace and truth, but also just in the past as a former executive director administrator is intentionally looking for seasonal work. That's not ideal. You want people who are going to stay with you long-term, but sometimes that's what's best for this really great caregiver in this season of their life. Um, sometimes it's in investing money in the stellar referral program that celebrates longevity. And sometimes it's leaving the community and going to a CNA school or a culinary school with, with no upfront intention um, except to pour into the future, the future workforce. Uh, like, for example, I would, I would go into CNA schools and connect with some of the educators and just ask if I could take a few hours of their time to let them sit at the desk and grade papers while I talk to their class about what future employers are looking for. And we didn't talk about go to this community and apply and these are the benefits and you're going to love working there. Instead, the topic of conversation, the topic of conversation really was what, what are employers looking for and how can you communicate that? Um, how can you take your words or your heart and put it into words in an interview and on your resume? And it's applicable skills that even if they didn't come work for me and my community, they were still they were still doing good in the lives of the people that they were serving. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes you're not always going to have this, you know, reciprocity. But most of the time, if you can take whatever the culture is, the culture norm, and you can create this counterculture. If you can, if leaders can see an avenue where they can serve people with no thought of getting anything in return, 
just truly loving people well while still fulfilling their responsibilities, reciprocity will end up happening. You will get retention of team members. You will get retention of residents. You will get non-paid referrals. You will get all of these different things. But if your heart is not truly aligned with that, and you, and if you don't have a vision for what that looks like and being successful at it, you're really just going to be spinning your wheels and get burnt out. And leaders are not going to be performing as efficiently and as successfully as they could potentially. So we look at what can be controlled and create a really clear vision for what success looks like. And we start there. And then we start working backwards on how that is obtained, putting action plans in place. There's accountability involved. There are exercises involved. Um, and measurable outcomes are regularly communicated. So leading by example, loving on the people that, you, that you're leading, um, having nothing in thought of return, you know, getting nothing out of it except for serving the people that you're leading. What about the business side of it? you know, staffing is a huge concern out there right now. So to any of the EDs out there that are dealing with staffing issues, anything that you can shine a light on, um, maybe how to solve or, or solutions that you can think of, um, you know, maybe from your training or maybe from your past experience as an ED, but any insight onto the staffing issues out there? Um, well, I, I wish I had a, some, you know, magical fairy dust I could just sprinkle over everyone's community and solve all of the staffing problems. Um, but, you know, I, I believe that a lot of um, human interaction I've seen and, in, um, and observed and heard about in our senior living industry and really just industries in general is, you know, a common problem is that I think there's a far too common habit of people putting themselves and their tasks or their, their initiatives, their ideas before other people. And, um, you know, a lot of times that can be deflating and it can add to, you know, turnover. It can add to burnout. Um, so, you know, one of, one of today's problems that really is um, kind of a pandemic all within itself is you know, just leaders either not having the freedom to or not knowing how to extend value to everyone that they lead, um, helping every person under that roof see that they have immense value, immense potential, immense purpose. So, you know, one of, one of examples of that is, you know, maybe an underdeveloped leader would want to, um, to maybe offer a, a referral program. And let's say that, you know, a leader is saying, I want to invite you to refer your friends to work here and I will financially incentivize you to do that. Or, um, you know, I'll incentivize you to, you know, an extra dollar an hour or $3 an hour, whatever you can manage 
to do these additional responsibilities. And I want it all done in an eight hour period. That can be so deflating. I mean, it sounds good on the surface, but it can at the end of the day be very deflating um, when as a caregiver or a dishwasher or a housekeeper or a nurse or a concierge or a sales leader, when you know you're receiving more money and have these other responsibilities, but you know in your heart you can't fulfill them in that eight-hour day, or you have to work additional hours and then get in trouble for overtime, you're not set up for success long-term. So I believe that if leaders are able to cast a vision for their entire team about what success truly looks like. They can describe it clearly and they can communicate that from the very beginning, from the time that you're, you start interviewing someone to onboarding them and you're, you're pouring life into them. Um, you're, you're explaining to everyone that you are the professional. You're not just this, or you're not just that. And you're adding value to that human being that is on your payroll. Um, I believe that that is the crux of every interaction and the crux of solving today's problems in senior living, specifically with personnel or staffing. Um, you know, I've over the years, I've heard so many stories of people who held different positions in a senior living community share horrible stories about what life is like outside of work and, you know, how, you know, they're, they're tired of this or they're worried about that or um, they don't see an opportunity to get out of this, you know, terrible situation or scenario. And as a leader, I remember thinking I, I could only fix that for them because you honestly want what's best for that person. But, you know, I don't have a cape. I don't have magical fairy dust. I don't, I don't have a, you know, Harry Potter wand or anything like that. But I do have an opportunity to control in some ways what their experience is like when they're at work. And knowing that someone can leave whatever, whatever is weighing them down outside of work and come to work and firmly believe and understand that they're valued, that they're, they have a voice, um, that they are appreciated, that they are considered an expert in their field. Um, all of those things are I believe all of those things are the answer to today's problem of, of staffing. And I'm not in any way saying that every person that you hire and bring onto your team is going to be successful in an environment like that. I don't, I don't believe that. But I do believe that that will bring measurable success and measurable outcomes if you find ways to connect with people and love people the way they want to be loved. Right. So let me play devil's advocate here and just mm -hmm. be on the other side of this. And this isn't yeah. necessarily how I feel, but 
why can't we just pay them more money? Oh, so good. I was, so I had a, a leader and a mentor previously that got me hooked on um, Harvard Business Review articles. I'm like an HBR geek or um, HRB geek. I mean, like it's uh, books and books on different Harvard business articles. And I was reading through one the other day and it was talking about how um, some Harvard students did uh, a number of different studies with various organizations. One that was highlighted was with Glassdoor. And uh, Glassdoor survey, various employees from various industries, different age groups, uh, different areas of the, of, um, the United States, and 80% of the employees that were surveyed on Glassdoor chose additional benefits over a pay increase. And it was things like, you know, a generous vacation policy. It was things like an opportunity for flexible hours or an opportunity to you know, work from home if that was possible or, you know, better healthcare options. And if you, if you as a leader have an opportunity to offer those things or influence those things, you should. Like, for example, I was um, working with an organization that did not offer tuition reimbursement as a benefit, but I found a way within the budget to get creative and offer that to uh, some of my my team members um, who desired that in exchange for longevity. So if if you do have control over something along those lines to invest in people um, in ways that are meaningful, then you should, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Um, and then there were a few other studies that were done in the same uh, the same article um, that just says that over and over and over again, there's evidence to believe that when you increase someone's pay, if there is any sort of boost in performance at all, it's oftentimes short-lived because an increase in pay, while it does motivate some people, it doesn't motivate everyone, but an increase in pay doesn't give someone more energy to withstand their responsibilities. It doesn't give someone more creativity to, to um, you know, make the most of their, their workspace. It doesn't give someone more hours in the day. Um, it only gives them more dollars in their pocket, but their performance while they're at work would not necessarily change. That's where the leader comes in. Um, so, you know, in opposition to that, Measurable outcomes have time and time again been found when there were other opportunities that were offered, like, for example, taking someone who doesn't have the title of a leader and putting them in a position to train other people and giving them opportunities that they would not otherwise have. Stretch assignments. You're responsible for this project. Tell me how it goes. And but things that can be achieved in their normal day-to-day uh, -day routine and schedule. And then also, just like Grace and Truth, my company, or you know, there are a number of other organizations out there that train on various things, you know, activity professionals and you know, finance management, um, but bringing in third parties who 
specialize in some type of education and offering that to your your team, your employees, not only for credentialing and CEUs, which is an added benefit, but knowing that your team, knowing that they are invested in and truly being invested in, um, that oftentimes study after study after study has resulted in it increases retention. It increases referrals for new team members. Um, it leads to advancement and growth opportunities. Um, and just the feeling of self-worth and their your team's identity as a professional, it grows exponentially every time. Yeah, so it sounds like getting to know them on a personal level and know what their goals and ambitions are as career growth. You know, I would imagine that not all of them want to be a caregiver for their mm -hmm. entire career. You know, maybe some of them want to f go from CNA to med tech to LPN, or maybe they want to get on the business side of it and go to business office, sales, maybe become an ED and even grow even farther from there. So like what you said about tuition reimbursement, that's a really good idea. But what about the companies that would say, yeah, that all sounds nice, paying more tuition reimbursement, healthcare, all of those things we wish we could. However, our occupancy is too low to do any of those things. And that seems like it's just an ongoing, not excuse, but reasoning of not having the finances to do the things that some of these companies wish they could do. So what do you think, right. of, what do you say about... Is that an actual, like, is that a real legit concern with occupancy being, you know, the reason why you can't do those things? Or let me flip it and say you're having occupancy issues probably because you're having staffing issues also. It, it's all together. So how do we, and, and I know this is a hard question, but how do we fix all of it? Yes. <laughs> um, one bite at a time. Yeah. It's absolutely one bite at a time. Um, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of a, uh, a time where I had, I had two leaders uh, in my community. Um, they were leaders in the influence that they had on other people and uh, not necessarily leaders by title, um, but they were both very wise, very valued, um, very respected in their field. And I, I want to believe that they knew that. I shared that with them regularly. But on a number of different things, these two leaders did not see eye to eye. And multiple team members in the community looked up to, you know, these, these two ladies and had a, a lot of respect for them. Um, but it had almost this toxic effect whenever they disagreed. Um, and it was... Um, it was kind of hard for me as a leader to process that initially because I was, I had this big picture vision in my head of, can't we all just get along and you guys need to figure it out. Come on, you're adults, you know, and that doesn't always fix it. So I just had this idea. I sat down with both of them and I said, you know, only you two can fix your relationship with each other. It isn't anybody else's job, nor is it even possible for anyone to fix the relationship that you have with each other. Here is 
a few here are a few areas of concern that I have about current state, which is this unhealthy relationship and your leaders, but you're not you're not as good as you could be as a leader as a result of this broken relationship. So I have a plan and I'm curious if you think it'll work. Uh, and I gave them, I had a, um, like a, a prepaid credit card, um, as an administrator, you didn't always have petty cash. You had this little piece of plastic and you can go out and buy something, but you better keep those receipts because you're responsible for every penny. And I slid the credit card across the desk and I said, I don't care whose pocket this goes into, but I highly advise that you take at least an hour. You find time to take at least an hour and go across the street and have a hamburger or have coffee and you figure out how to work well together because you, you're not expected to be perfect and you're not expected to have a perfect relationship, but you are expected to steward your responsibilities as a leader well. And right now that isn't happening, but it can. And um, it was so funny because both of them, their eyes lit up. They were never trusted with a company credit card before. And I said, the only two rules for the whole, the whole thing is one, bring back a receipt. <laughs> and and two, make forward progress in your relationship. That's it. I'm trusting you to do both of those things. And then, you know, of course they were, well, how much can I spend? And can I go to the store? And of course they were kidding. And we kind of had a laugh about it. I did have to align expectations there. But it actually came back uh, that at the end of their shift, um, they, they went on their lunch break. and worked together on a few different things they didn't see eye to eye on, came back and said, I feel like we made some progress, but I think it's going to take a little bit more time. Can we do this again next week? Sure. And they passed the receipt along. I think it was like $14 or something like that. And um, they came back to me together the next week and said, we have a few more things that I feel like we're still stuck on can we try it again? I said, absolutely. So I handed them the prepaid credit card again. And uh, they came back, it was like $6. They got a cup of coffee or something. And I don't know if everything was perfect after that, but I do know that what I observed and the feedback that I saw that I received from the team and how they led meetings, how they coached people on documentation, how they helped with onboarding of new team members, it was wildly different. It was more positive. It was more thoughtful. It was more proactively communicative than it had been in the past. And it was less than 25 bucks. So I, I believe it takes money to make money. I do believe that, but it doesn't have to break the bank. That's a, that's an amazing, just that's leadership right there. That's fine. So I don't think a lot of a lot of people out there that are executive directors today, and maybe there's probably, you know, there's probably a lot out there that, that do things like this, but I would say that that's probably a missing link to leadership. And I think it'd be really easy just to sit those two people down, maybe even, you know, do a write up and tell them, you know, they need to get along and then they, you know, send them on their way. 
and then they go both go home and they complain and you know months go by of nothing changing and then they end up leaving the company and going to another place down the street um so i commend you for that that's awesome to kind of think outside the box and go hey you two go sit down outside and go figure this out but on top of that i think like giving them the company credit card which is a small thing to do but to them it was like trust right so now no one had ever done that no one had ever done that before and that's Mm -hmm. crazy to even think about but um so i kind of i really want to tie this back into the occupancy and you know i think there's an ongoing well we can't hire more people we can't find good people we can't pay for these things that we think we need to do to to keep more caregivers or nurses or et cetera, anything on the caregiver side, because right now our occupancy is at X. Um, and until we get it to 90% or above, we can't afford to do these things. And on the sales side, they're thinking, if we don't have enough caregivers to take care of these people, how are, you know, there's like, there's a fine line there. Once we're, we're, once we're growing in occupancy, we have to hire more people. And so it's like, well, once we hit this amount of move-ins, we'll hire another person. And then once we have, you know, once we hit 80%, we'll hire two more. And so is, is the answer, yes, you have to grow occupancy first. And it's all on the sales side to grow the occupancy. Or is the real answer to staff like you're going to be 100%. Like staff like you're going to be 100%, and function as a organization like you are at 100% and you will get to 100% because what you're selling is a product that's not ready for 100%. You know so so I guess my question is like is the answer to yes you have to grow occupancy and and the reason why I'm asking this cuz I've never been in the executive director seat. So is it yes you have to grow occupancy you have to hit these numbers to financially pay for these things or is it or is the model, should the model be, we're going to staff this like it's 100%. And, and what comes to mind is hotels. So our, like the Ritz-Carlton is always a good example of their hospitality. Do they staff like according to what their occupancy would be or like full 100% or are they doing it based off what it is for that night? Like, I don't know if you have any insight on that, but that's kind of where I want to go with it as far as just like what should the model be? We know what the model is today. But what should the model be? What would actually work to get these places to grow occupancy? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I think there are multiple approaches to that that have been successful in the past. I, But I honestly, flip side of that is I honestly don't believe that there is one right answer. I think that is a uh, you can argue for or against any approach. But um I believe that there are pros and cons to every every approach. And really, you know, going back to building relationships, um, you know, as an executive director or an administrator of a community, one of your relationships, um, whether it's directly or indirectly, is with your investor partners. And you are responsible for cultivating that relationship again whether it's directly or indirectly indirectly would just look like making sure that your noi at the end of the month is where it needs to be (laughs) and um directly would be actually having in-person conversations with them but every investor partner relationship is different and their expectations of the business is different and every management company has different expectations so 
for that reason, there are a plethora of different options. So let me ask you this. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. So let me ask you this then. So with that being said, what are the issues that you're seeing with the relationships with investors that are causing these problems? Yeah. So I was, so I'm reminded of a a relationship that we had with um, uh, an investor partner. Uh, Initially, there was this lengthy list of expectations that had to be achieved every week, every month. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily responsibilities that maybe a management company would put on an administrator. It was it was reports and data and specific communication and specific activities as it relates to sales activity. And it was exhausting just thinking about the rigidity of of my responsibilities on top of the day-to-day operations. And then there was a different investor group uh, that came in after that. And they were incredibly communicative. Um, They were open-minded about different ways to approach problem solving and troubleshooting. And they were still, they were still clear on expectations and accountability, um, but they allowed more freedom in the workplace. And I found myself doing all of the things that the previous investor company had asked of me. Um, but I wasn't doing it because I was told to do it. I was doing it because I honestly thought it was best and I had a desire to complete those tasks. And I, there was this aha moment for me looking over the list, my things to do list. I was like, I'm doing these things because I want to, not because I was told that I had to. So I believe that the relationship with investor partners, it's critical. It's critical not only to the investor because they're trusting you as the management company or the administrator to make their dollars grow for their business, but it's critical to the administrator and the management company as well. Um, So that, again, it all goes back to people and relationships, aligning expectations, proactively communicating, and leading with your heart to... just just today, there was an investor that I sent a text message to um, and told him, hey, tomorrow is uh, your grandson's birthday. He's turning three, right? What are you guys doing to celebrate that? I don't know how many, and I, I'm not even the administrator of that community that he was leading any longer, but if your heart's truly in it and you want to connect with people, it is a good business practice without a doubt. And sometimes it's, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, do you, do you staff like you're hundred percent now and explain away all these negative dollars and hope there's more where that came from? Um, or do you have a skeleton type product and hope that it sells, you know? Um, I believe that, it has to fluctuate. And the answer to both is yes. And a lot of it is how you think. Like for example, there were a number of communities that I led in pre-open. And at one point in time, I held the role and responsibility of the regional director of operations for startup communities. And in those startup communities, the filter that we ran every 
every uh, system, every project, every initiative through is what will this look like when the community is 100% occupied? Because it's easy and it's enticing to offer, you know, we will we'll do we'll offer transportation every day of the week and we will offer this service that our medication aides are able to you know provide or the dining team is able to provide and it's good and attainable when you're at 10 20 30% occupancy um when you're at 70 80 90% you're going to start letting a lot of people down quickly so I believe the answer to your question is yes, it's both. But if you have healthy filters that you run each individual decision through, like, for example, what would this look like when we're 100% occupied, it will help you to make individual decisions wisely from an operational and business perspective. Yeah, that's. I think that's a, a great answer. So also, I want to dive in a little bit about what you think as far as an ED and sales director's relationship. And if there's anything that you, um, in your training that you work with EDs, like, you know, with a sales director, it's, it's kind of a different relationship, right. Than you have with everybody. You have your nurse, which is, is a really special relationship too. Um, but with your sales director, it's protecting their time and setting expectations and letting them run and do the things that they need to do to be successful. So any insight on what you train as far as, what a successful relationship looks like between an ED and a sales director. Yeah, it's um, it's it's professional and it's fun, and it's a healthy combination of the two. Um, I firmly believe that just like every relationship an executive director should have with anyone on their team the sales leader um, is the same way you have to have, you have to have conversations that are results driven. Um, You have to have conversations that they confront reality. If there's underperformance or if there's, you know, too much time spent in one area that isn't, it isn't well spent. Um, You have to have conversations with your sales leader that is two-way conversation because just like any just like any relationship you can't just assume that because you have a name tag that says hello my name is heather white executive director that you hold all of the answers and you understand all of the nuances that go into selling both inside and outside of the community So the relationship in those ways are very similar to the relationships you have with everyone else in the community. I think the difference though, between an executive director and a sales leader, sales director is one of a very unique sense of empowerment. Not only is your sales leader responsible for all of these different tasks and activities, and they're empowered to make decisions on the fly, you know, based on whatever the need is of the customer um, or opportunities that come up. Um, But they are also a developed leader in the community as well. Um, Because if anyone 
on your team believes that there is a salesperson and everyone else is the doer, you are so set up for failure. You know, I, um, I don't even remember what book it was I was, I was reading or who told me this, but there's this idea that you, that you, there's this death of the salesman. You don't have a salesperson. You have a team of sales professionals. And again, that starts with, you know, onboarding and, you know, interviewing people. Um, But casting a vision that every person on your payroll is a sales professional and they believe that and they see how they fit into that that puzzle that's vital and a lot of that is a direct result of how that community sales leader um, enables them it isn't uncommon in communities that i've led in the past to have the sales professional intentionally lead trainings that include every person in the community. And it it isn't only, you know, this is what's expected of you if I have a tour walking through the community, but um, it is, I understand that we had this event and this went really well. What can you do with the goodness that came out of that tomorrow to help someone feel more welcome and at home here? And a lot of it is, just addressing how the sales professional addressing how everyone on your team thinks about what they do to directly impact sales. And I believe another key piece of that too is thinking is thinking about sales as incoming residents or incoming move-ins is an incorrect and unhealthy way of thinking because sales instead it is this overarching move in, stay in way of thinking. It's every conversation, every interaction is, is a sale. It's every time someone on the dining team or care or server team delivers a plate of food to a resident, or every time a light bulb is burnt out and someone comes into their room to replace it, or you know, the phone is answered or someone apologizes to a family member who's upset about an unmet expectation and intentionally and proactively calls them the next day to say, I heard you and I apologize again. This is what I've done going forward. Um, It is literally every interaction is a sale and it's vital for the sales leader with that title to understand that they are empowered to share their wisdom with the entire community. They are a leader as well, not just responsible for collecting a check and getting a movement. That makes a lot of sense and why you've had so much success in occupancy growth as an ED. You know, you train everyone to have a sales mind. um, And it's not just, it doesn't stop when the resident moves in, right? It's, it's move in, stay in, and it's closing the back door. And I was going to ask, how do you, you know, what is your approach to closing the back door? Cause it seems like such a big problem with our industry as well, too, is that you're having more move outs than you're having more move ins. And it's just like this never ending cycle, but that's a perfect answer is you're, you're creating a, 
you're creating an organization where everybody is sales minded by having, you know, you're, you're having your sales director teaching sales to the entire team, why it matters and what to do and just basically just customer experience and, and how to handle certain situations. So when they do come about, they have the ability to handle those types of things and not have to like wait to go ask the ED to handle something. They can just take care of it right then and there with the mindset of customer service. And that's going to help Absolutely. keep residents in. Um, and that's why it makes a lot of sense to me is why you've had so much success um, with occupancy growth out there. But oh, uh, thank you. And they all, you know, all of these, all of these ideas that we're discussing, they really do all go hand in hand, you know, like the, the idea of everyone being responsible for sales. It's one thing for, you know, a server, a housekeeper, a caregiver to be told that they're responsible for sales. Oftentimes that will land on someone as, oh, great, more responsibilities. That's not my job, which just, you know, I have pain in my heart whenever I, I have anybody say that's not my job because everything is everybody's job. But, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to tell someone they're responsible for sales and this is what it looks like, you know, in your eight hour shift while you're here. But it's a wildly different thing for the executive director, sales professional, you know, the nurse to cast a vision in the minds of the team members, the employees there, that where they leave that conversation firmly understanding that they are a professional subject matter expert. And this is what it looks like to be that expert at this community. Um, that those two things, while the outcome is still the same, you want them to understand that every interaction is a sale and you want them to create relationships and put people first. You want those outcomes, but the messaging around it has to be crafted in a way that, that really resonates with people so that they have a sense of self and self-worth and they feel valued and empowered because if it doesn't land on the team like that, you're not as likely to get as robust outcomes in the end. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so for anyone, any company or, you know, person out there that does listen to this and this really resonates with them and maybe they want to, you know, dive in a little bit more and, you know, they're thinking about, you know, that maybe they do need this type of service in the side of their communities, maybe just want to get a little bit more information and talk to you. Where can people find you? Um, social media, online, uh, where, where can people find you to reach out? Yeah, so I, um, I have a, a Facebook um Instagram and LinkedIn page. Uh, I will in the very near future have TikTok, which I'm conflicted about, but I'm going to grow and stretch myself and get on TikTok. I feel like a youngster. I'm just so proud of myself. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I give out my cell phone um, more often than uh, my website. My website is gracetruthedu.com. But most of the time I ask people to connect with me 
um, via my cell phone, either a phone call or a text message, because it's just so much more personal. And again, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about, right? We're in, we're in the people business. So the best way to reach me at any time is my cell phone, 817-600-7243. And it is, uh, it's an honor whenever someone calls and says, I, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know it's not working. <laughs> like, this is so good. Let's sit in this for a minute. So if, if that's something that uh, someone is, is feeling or is worried that someone on their team is feeling, I would, I would love to talk through it. And we'll put all of that in the, the show notes too with links. So you guys can have all of her, uh, her website and her Facebook. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, and do me a favor, do me and Michael a favor. You couldn't make it today, but share this episode with at least one person that, you know, you know, family friend or someone that, you know, in senior living, um, that would be great to help, help us spread the word. And then until next time, We'll see you later. Bye.